Hello and welcome to Rule of Carnage, where we're going to be talking about designing and developing miniature war games. I'm Mike Hutchinson, a games designer, and I'm here with Glenn Ford, also a games designer. Glenn, what are we going to be talking about today? So today I thought we would talk about the uh, the rather high-fluting idea of our process in designing a game. So we're going to, for the first half, talk about literally how we go from idea fuzzing around in your head to uh, some sort of finalized product, whether it ends up being a, a box game or a, or a book for a, for a miniatures war game. And then hopefully in the second half, we'll talk maybe a little bit more specifically. I'll hold forth on my experience of having successfully kickstarted some games. And Mike, you'll tell us about the, the mysterious art of pitching to publishers and actually getting picked up. Mysterious um, art of crippling rejection letters. <laughs> Deal with rejection after soul hammering rejection. Yeah. Um, Sounds good. Yeah, brilliant. So I'll ask you, Mike, how do you filter the, the clamorous voices of ideas that are no doubt constantly in your, your brilliant mind down into the very first stages of controlling them towards, towards some sort of product? So, yeah. So I have a lot of exciting ideas for games have them quite regularly and I write them down in my little ring bound notebook which I'm sure most designers will have one of and I tend to when I have an idea that I'm excited about that's just at the very very conceptual stage stages I'll grab a fresh page of my notebook I'll write a title and a date and I will just jot down whatever it is that I'm excited about and quite often I'll phrase that as a question to myself like what, what if there was a war game which didn't have turns but had acts like in a play uh, and that sort of that'll be the opening statement of the of the page and then I'll sort of just slam down a bunch of bullet points probably half garbled and uh, I actually learned from uh, Glenn that having erasable pens is kind of a fun <laughs> thing you might wonder why not just use a pencil but pencils <laughs> smudge over time in your notebook I find so the beginning of my process is always throwing down whatever it is that, that was sort of getting me excited about a, a game idea. Quite often that's a concept, like a high concept for like, here's a thing that I can mess with. Sometimes it's a mechanic. So a couple of times I've sort of started a page about like, okay, how are we going to do like a combat game or a fighting game or a dueling game? And I've got some idea about how that's going to work. And then normally that's enough. Like that page of notes will either that will be the sort of demon expelled and I'll never have to look at it again, or maybe I'll bump into it later, or it starts to claw at my mind. And, you know, the next day when I'm in the shower, I start to get the next questions or the next ideas. And so at that point, it begins to take, sort of go into the next stage. Is that, Glenn, is that sort of how, is that how you expel the initial demon as well, roughly? So I've got a ring binder. And there's uh, the first page, it's a page very four. And what an idea, get, it get, the idea gets one to maximum two lines of that page of A4. And it needs to, and I explain it out in those two lines. And then that list always goes back on the shelf. However excited I am about the idea, it goes into that, that list. And then that ring buddy goes back on the shelf. And a few weeks later, at most, it comes back down and if I can still remember what the idea was and what was interesting or exciting about it off of those two lines, then it might get an opportunity to go on to the next stage. 
And every few months I go through that list and I cross off anything that hasn't worked or come out or just sounds silly or I can't remember what it was. And whenever that list gets past a single side of A4, it gets re-edited out and things get scrubbed and it gets cut down to about three quarters of a page. And and that's how it. I mean, I, I think I said to you, hopefully as a games designer, ideas are cheap. Mm. You know, development is is where is where the sweat is you know turning it from that first idea to something that goes somewhere is is the hard work and so you have an idea you have a concept and sometimes a couple of those ideas get mashed together sometimes one of them goes out to be like a paragraph of mechanics so sometimes it'll be an idea oh that's not going to support a full game but that mechanical idea was a good idea so that gets pulled out, it gets turned into a paragraph of mechanics and that goes on to like, so the next few pages in that folder are literally sort of a paragraph or two of a mechanical idea or an explanation of a sentence, which was never going to carry its own game, but is a neat little thing. And that gets written down just in case it, it gets used. And sometimes when I go and talk about this in a second, we go to the sort of the prototype stage. After a little while, the game hasn't worked as a prototype, it gets broken back down again sometimes it goes back to being one of those paragraphs because i've you know i've talked to people on board game geek and forums and such like and they've realized an idea isn't working and they say okay is that it is that months of work just down the drain Mm. it's never wasted time i think developing something you can always if it was if it was worth putting those months in there's something there that you can salvage back out again yeah and quite and quite often whatever problem you were wrestling with you'll you'll end up bumping into just reskinned or rethemed in another game I'm really interested. So just tell me a little bit more about why you force distance between your initial excitement and starting to develop the idea any further. Surely you should dive in whilst the whilst the passion is running is running wild. Why do you why do you put that distance in? I mean, it's um, funny enough, the sitcom writer uh, Graham, Graham Linehan wrote the IT crowd and black books. Whenever he has an idea, he has a, apparently a drawer in his desk that locks. And when he has an idea, he writes it down and he puts it into that desk drawer and he locks the desk drawer and then he goes away again. And that desk drawer never gets opened to be read through apart from like, and, and he's, you know, a, a bigger deal and more disciplined. He goes back to that drawer like every three months or something, he says. And it has to survive that initial excitement to being something. I guess it's because the the process of working a game all the way through is a cold hell sometimes. And you need to, you know, writing is rewriting. The first version, the first spew of ideas. I generally don't have a lot of difficulty holding the the framework that I would splurge out onto a piece of paper in my head for for sort of quite a period of time and personally a lot of my process is doing a lot of work and then going away and then coming back and finding out that the back brain has kind of chewed through a lot of the the ore to spit Mm. something out and then you know splurging that out again and I find that if I if I do something and then keep pushing it and keep pushing it, I, I very quickly get to a point where all of the cle- all the smart things have gone, and the and the, and the sort of the sub brain needs to to work it over. And so I think I my, my my problem this might be a learning style difference. So I, if I'm excited about something, I will very very quickly get it to playable prototype, and by playable prototype, I mean like horrible rubbish nonsense. But um, 
having put it on the table and having pushed it around like the physicality of that act even if it's very simple and early in the design is what cements the system in my mind so having conceived of it, it's not enough i need to have felt it out physically on the table and once i do that then i can step away from it um, so we should talk about prototyping yeah i think the the first step for me often with with prototyping anything is w- whether it's a physical box game or a or a skirmish miniatures game it's writing out the rules in in sort of one complete chunk and again i i think generally with prototyping again i talk to a lot of sort of first time designers or, or or people who haven't designed a game yet and there's so much value in that first shoddy doesn't really work prototype primarily because there are those moments and i don't know if you come across this sometimes where in your head everything ticks through and it's all clockwork and you do this and then that and then you physically write it down and you suddenly go oh just a minute that thing's here at that moment it can't also be over there and you literally physically go oh right yeah i wasn't I wasn't genuinely holding it all in my skull. Yeah, like, no, it's, was... it's uh, this is so this is so true. Like having thought about this because it's happened to me a lot. It's almost like you dream of a good game. <laughs> and in dream reality, it's a great game and everything clicks together and you're like, I'm a super genius. This is amazing. And then you put it in front of another human and they just go, but there's three wheels and one of them's on the roof. And you're like, oh God, you're right. Oh yes, 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 yes. Let's fix that. Let me go away and be less horrible at that game design. Yeah, I mean, you, you, I, I think it's very easy to get focused in on all of the separate bits of your game as they're all sort of little, beautiful, disjointed things lying around the table. And unless you're a lot smarter than I am, you really can't click them all together. You can't genuinely build the machine entirely in your head and whole i mean hopefully you're to be honest i mean i imagine there's some games that are simple enough where you can but if your game is of any level of complexity i don't think you can you know it's like it, it's like you you can see what's in your peripheral vision but you can't really see what's in your peripheral vision you're you, you you're just kind of imagining vaguely that there's a connection there and you need to actually sort of turn your head to it and that another, first- another- Another aspect of prototyping, which I'm interested in. So I do this a lot because I'm I'm lazy or or because I want to find out what the what the interesting thing is. So particularly with miniature skirmish games, um, quite often I'll be exploring an idea that I'm excited about. And that might be a narrative or a thematic idea, or it might be a mechanical idea that I think is interesting. And quite often my prototype will just borrow a bunch of existing mechanics that I already understand. And so I, I kind of start with a scaffolding or I just need like a shooting resolution system right now because I wasn't excited about that part of the game but like two things are going to shoot each other okay I'll just I'll just do the normal thing that I do or I'll do the last game that I played um I'm interested I'm interested does that work for sort of board game design as well do you just go oh, I don't I don't know what the tableau thing is I'll just borrow that that from another game or is that one of the differences between prototyping perhaps a a miniatures and and tape measures game versus something that's a bit more of an abstracted board game i think that um i think that for a board game there's a lo- there are a lot of mechanics where you, you can sort of have a mental placeholder so you know um okay there's gonna be a discard pile and there's gonna be a draw stack and they're, they're gonna do it's gonna do the normal dominion deck build a bit there and, and then you can fit the other stuff around it. I, I, I think the huge difference with prototyping a board game is unsurprisingly all the components where, 
you know, a, re- a fairly simple board game is going to have, you know, whatever, 50 cards, and you've got to physically sort of create those cards, and they're going to have to interact. And for me, that's, that's one of the things where I really, really need to prototype a board game whereas i don't so when i'm when i'm writing out a a miniatures war game the important point is those bits were in the rules where you say see page blah blah and you then actually have to write page blah blah and make sure that the two of them actually interact with each other in an intelligent way because when they're in my head they're all separate entities and then when i write them down i suddenly realize oh just a minute this phase doesn't work unless that phase does something or or that phase doesn't click unless that phase does something um when prototyping a board game uh it's much more a case of okay i need 50 cards that do roughly x but slightly different from each other in an interesting way and then physically prototyping out all of those 50 cards is is often writing the bulk of the uh, of the actual game and the rules for bo- I find that in board games the rules come a, a lot later a lot of the time. Um, right. So you sort of you build the component library in front of you, and you sort of know what they're supposed to do. But the the, the rule book it's sort of the last thing to come in because really you're just moving the components around for a while. I think I think a lot of the time for a, for a board game the rules are how I explain to you how the game is meant to be played. Um, because once I figured out all the components, I hopefully know how the game is being played anyway, if I'm just on my own. And you, I mean, you, you want to get onto the rule book as early as possible for a board game, because it is the, you know, it's always the hardest part of the writing process. It's, it, it makes your head bleed, but it is ultimately, I think that with a skirmish game, the, the rule book sort of cr- creates the game. I, I can't. I can't just yeah. play a skirmish game without the rule book, really. But I can play the board. I mean, if if you think of the way you physically play board games, hopefully you don't play board games and card games with the rule book open at the table. You know, you you the hope you need to do a lot of the work of communicating and reminding you. Yeah, you, how you, the system you gen- clicks. You generally internalize the rules and then you play play the game. Whereas with most skirmish war games, and I don't think it's a thing about complexity, I think it's just the nature of the thing, is that unless you're very, very experienced with a, with a sort of a miniatures game, you'll tend to have that book open at the table at sort of point, almost yeah. all the time, because yeah. that's, the, that's the nature of the beast. Where the, the board game, there's so much sort of information on the cards, um, and there's so much interaction is within the cards that you need to get the get them physically made sort of as early as possible so we Um, should talk we should talk a little bit about the practicalities of prototyping um so it is a little bit different as you suggest for a for a board game and a miniatures game um although i do tend to prototype quite a lot of quick reference components because i'm lazy and i want for example recently with mystic skies the little spell cards, which aren't really needed, but were like quick references. Would I, I made them almost the first day that I was playing the game because I laid the game out, I got the miniatures out, and I was like, "What do my spells do?" And I I wanted to have them laid out in front of me. Um, but in terms of the practicalities, I suppose it's interesting because the two of you, the two of us, <laughs> the two of you, <laughs> you and you, um, we've got slightly different approaches technologically um, because hmm. I come from a graphic design, somewhat of a graphic design background and I'm very confident with um, Photoshop and Illustrator and all kinds of um, 
whizzy whizzy bits and bobs whereas you're a ring bound sort of squared paper and a and, a, and an erasable pen kind of a guy and, mm. and i think the the point is that neither neither is more or less effective than the other uh, it's whatever tool we feel like most efficient and comfortable with i like mm. using the digital tools because i can throw out some um you know, some some cards for a for a unit, or I can lay out some templates really fast. I can save them. I know that I'm not going to lose them, and that kind of helps. That helps my process. Um, mm. But you presumably you enjoy the the fact that you can just get things in front of you and rub them out and mess about. Yeah, I mean, even even when I'm working on sort of uh, a, you know a, a game like what it Gaslands or something, I'll print out the all of the rules even when it's in an early version and i'll make my adjustments on it with a pen rather than than and then type it all up into the computer that's just a thing about i think that you know you you have to be comfortable when you're doing creative work about the way that the idea comes from your head to the physical thing and sometimes you know you'll find sitting in front of a computer and sort of gazing off into the distance and then typing things out and sometimes you need to sort of, well, I need to have a pen and a bit of paper and scribble things and have just just pieces of paper with random deranged notes on them written upside down that, that in sort of scroll. It will sometimes give to me, people. <laughs> uh, yeah, for it, it, it's, I think certainly early on in the days of, uh, of Gaslands, I, I didn't sort of type anything up and Mike just got reams and reams it's of like, handwritten. Like, yeah, handwritten, uh, handwritten lined paper just shoved in unsorted <laughs> through my letterbox. There you go, there's <laughs> ideas, have ideas. I had, to, I had to number the pages and staple them myself. <laughs> <laughs> and then file them in the big in the big uh, missives from Glenn folder. I think I think that is a really important point though that you should, as a games designer, you must feel empowered to just use whatever tool and practice suits your brain. There is no correct tooling for prototyping, mm. and there's no correct tooling for for the development stage. I, I actually really I, I tend to work digitally quite a lot, so I'll do a lot of my editing and sort of thought expulsion straight into Google Docs. But I will quite often print off even really early drafts and get a pen and go and sit on the sofa and like not be at my computer and not be distracted because there's just a different kind of thinking that happens with that. And indeed, yeah. sometimes I will print a copy off and then carry it out of the door and go for a walk and sort of pull it out of my back pocket occasionally and scrawl something indecipherable on it because you just need to keep changing the environment and changing your sort of your stance and your relationship with the text in front of you to try and shake things down from the tree. Okay, so you've got a, a, a first prototype version of the game which physically can be played. The first version gets played solo. It gets played solo a lot in my head, just running it through going, does that work? Does that break down? Then the physical thing gets made and the physical thing gets played solo a handful of times just to make sure that the wheels don't just immediately fall off and it all goes when when the cogs all hit each other in the wrong shape. I suppose a big question that a lot of people ask is when do you first show it to another human being? Really, really um, early, really early, like much <laughs> earlier than you're comfortable with. Because, mm. of, because of that dream state that we discussed earlier, the number of times that I have thought I had something amazing and then shown it to a human and they have pointed out that it is flawed, horribly flawed. It, like it's it, it's an incredibly regular occurrence. And so I think that 
the secret is to show it to another human as soon as possible. And there is a bit of a caveat there, um, which is that you need to balance being sure of your of the purpose of your design and the showing it to humans to find out whether it's got its legs attached to its head or not. By which I mean, the earlier you show it, the, the sooner you're going to realise whether you've got anything there at all and you're mm. going to start not sort of moving from the hypothetical design stage to the actual design stage. Um, mm. But there is a stage where... It, you might not know how to take feedback yet because you don't know what the game is trying to do yet and you sort of mm. it's a, it, it's, a it, it's so embryonic that you don't know whether the feedback is relevant or not um and you mm. should always be in a position to understand whether the feedback's relevant or not because yeah we'll just say things to you i genuinely want to sort of at a later point do a whole half hour on this talking about the nature of the relationship with playtesters and designers and when you need to and i and i think it's, we, we really need to talk about it particularly i think in relation to gaslands and other things is the things you know that you need to fight for and the things that you need to sort of open up to other people but you're um, right that's sort of slightly later in the development process yeah, whereas, yeah, yeah. whereas that that initial moment where you've the very very first paper prototype in front of you you've played it twice yourself it seems to hang together you think it might be fun there's something mm. that's exciting you about it i think that's the moment where you have to show it to somebody else because they will immediately burst your bubble of whether mm. there is anything fun here one of my very earliest uh, experiences of designing a sort of settlers of Catan ripoff that was about uh, early uh, early bobbies in London trying to chase criminals around I showed it to somebody who wasn't even a mad board game fan but had played a you know played a reasonable amount and he just immediately saw the system and was just like oh well there's just one obvious choice at every point this isn't really a game and I was like oh no I'll never be a games designer <laughs> but actually what I hadn't realized at that point was that that's the most critical moment you just have to do that super early because somebody will point at the obvious flaw and you'll go Right, let's start designing a game. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't keep it secret. You know, show it to somebody else as early as as soon as there's something to show to somebody else, show it to another human being. You know, hopefully somebody whose opinion you trust. You know, and at later points there'll be a a blind testing round and opening it to the to the general public. But try and find a person you trust and show it to them as soon as there's there's something that hangs together as as any kind of an entity. I think. Yeah, the two questions are usually, is, is there something here, something that it's worth digging down to? And B, is this fun? Because the thing I, I personally, I, I always struggle to judge in my own designs is where where the fun is a lot of the time, because I think that... Well, maybe not, e maybe not even is this fun, but it's like, can could this be fun? Yeah. Does this look know, like is, it's pointing in a fun direction? Well, I think it's like it, a lot of the time you sort of you put the first thing down. You go, okay, look, this this bit here, hold that to one, put, put a pin in that. This bit there, put a pin in that. That bit there was that bit there and that moment of fun or interest. Because if that isn't fun or interesting, and I think it, and I think it, we'll come back to this. There's an important thing about knowing which of the bits really needs to work. Because a lot, of, I think a lot of the time in most designs, there's a whole bunch of scaffolding that needs to work and is important. But if it works in a different way or, or it works with a different system, you know, and then there's usually a heart of the game. There's, there's the spine of it. There's the central part. And it's like, OK, 
that needs to work and that needs to work in pretty much this kind of way otherwise there's no point bothering with all the rest of the scaffolding all the rest of the scaffolding is just going to be holding up something that isn't the point of what we're doing here that, that that's interesting and i think you and i have maybe a slight divergence of opinion on this particular topic um but it feels like it might be a totally separate thing um but yeah just to put a pin in the fact that I think that there are central ideas or feelings or narratives or concepts that I want to preserve and hero, but the way that they are implemented systemically or in the rules, I sort of feel like should always be open for later revision mm. and you should sort of never have any darling that can't be killed, even if it's one of the central ideas. Because um, I've had a couple of, couple of personal experiences where what I thought was the central idea ended up being eclipsed by a bunch of other incredibly much more fun ideas. And then the thing that I thought was important in the early stages turned out to be just an appendix. Mm. But anyway, that's a separate thing. So we have a, we have a prototype that we've showed to a human. Mm -hmm. Let's, do, do we assume at this point that we have discovered fun and we want to move to the next stage? I, yeah, I mean, hopefully, because yes, there's a lot of prototypes and ideas that crash and burn at that stage and you find out, you will find out sometimes that your idea is just not fun. The thing that you thought was interesting and intriguing just doesn't come out and it's just an absolute pain going through the process, dig down to it. Um, do, you, do you just do you just make this is a this is a theoretical question do you does one just make one prototype i when i make a physical prototype of a box game literally i get out i get i get out a deck of playing cards and i get plain stickers and i stick them on and i physically write on them with uh erasable pens and then they get erased and rewritten sometimes in the middle of a play test until the little label won't take it anymore and then a new prototype gets physically made and everything and then i remake the whole thing lots of people do it on a on a computer and print it out and run it that way if you've got uh, if you've got card sleeves bunch of random old magic cards or whatever with slits of paper in front of them that's a great way to to prototype if what you mean is if an idea goes off on two divergent paths do you make a prototype for each of those divergent paths no i suppose that's that's not maybe i mean I suppose one of the things that's unclear to me is where in my process I move from I am prototyping to I am in an early development iteration. Because for me, it's just it's just a continuous, <clears throat> particularly because I'm writing miniature war games where, as we've said, it's mostly just about a document that explains the rules. Like that document gets written in a terrible first version, which is essentially the prototype. Mm. And then it might get added to and added to and added to and then rewritten and then maybe thrown away and I'll start a clean copy. And so a game like A Billion Sons, I have two completely different games that predated A Billion Sons. Um, so the very first version of Billion Sons is called, um, it's called Star Killer and it's got templates and there's a rule book for it. And that kind of got iterated and iterated and iterated and then I threw it away and I started a new one that was called Leviathans and that's got slightly different thing and it's got the the silhouette mm. system and that sort of that that was a rule book that started at four pages and maybe got to, to eight or 12 and then I threw that away and I started again from scratch but I guess at, at no point was I sort of saying this is a prototype this is an early version of the game that I'm now in development phase of mm. and I suppose I guess my point is it doesn't it doesn't matter there is no arcane special property of a prototype it's just how early and disposable and cheaply was it made and you should try mm. and keep as disposable and cheap as uh, as 
for as long as possible, I think, because then you aren't, you know, if you go out and pay illustrators and graphic designers to create something really beautiful that is essentially just a prototype and then you pay money to get that printed like you're now holding on to this thing that just might be terrible like these might be bad parts of your game but you've accidentally become wedded to them for some physical reason so i would say yeah you know keep keep nimble and and cheap and disposable for as long as possible and i think that's where prototyping and developing really are kind Mm. of inseparable for me yeah absolutely i think i think there's sort of you know there's sort of a philosopher's axe thing about prototypes sometimes is that you know you replace the handle of it and then you replace the head of it and is it the same thing anymore and and i think sometimes you get your first prototype and then you pull a bit out and you shove a bit in then you pull a bit out and you shove a bit in and sometimes the bit you pull out and shove in is the main title of it and sometimes it's the entire body of the thing and when it is when does that become a new prototype it it doesn't matter because no one's counting and no one cares no no like it's I, th- I think that I think if you've got prototype one and then you change it so severely that it becomes prototype two and then you take prototype one and you put it back on the shelf and you think I might I might come back to that. That's still an idea. It's just a different idea. But this this is the way this is going. Then I think you've got two prototypes. I think if you take prototype one and you just go, I mean, at best, I'll archive it. This is this is just a worse version of that then I think you, you, you sort of, you go into the stage. But well, I agree. As, as, a, as, a, as a slight aside, it might, be, it might be worth just mentioning this. So because I come from a world of software development, like the versioning numbers of software matters. They have a semantic. And I have sort of borrowed some of that for my own internal numbering. So because I'm working digitally, because I'm working in a, in a Word document, I always number my versions. And when I increment the number is sort of an arbitrary decision that I just like, I sit down and I'm feeling, you know, freshly caffeinated. And so I'm like, right, it's time to increment the version number. Or I get to the end of an edit session. I'm like, okay, that was actually kind of bigger than I was expecting. I'm going to increment the version number. And it particularly becomes important when you're doing public um, beta testing, where you really have to let the, the beta testers know whether they've got an incremented document or not. But I suppose one thing that that helps with this discussion is there's an idea in software uh, between major software versions and minor software versions. So version one, version 1.1, version 1.2, version 2.0. So version uh, version one, two, three is like major changes to the way that the functionality of the thing works and people who encounter it may or may not even recognize it as some of the same thing. Whereas the minor, the sort of decimal point versions are just little fixes and, increment, and, and increments on something that basically is the same. And I use that in my own um, versioning systems to sort of both remind myself, but also give myself the sort of psychological freedom to say, I am now moving from thing worked like this to thing actually works like this. And so a a recent example was um, Mystic Skies, which had a couple of really fundamental shifts in the way that the game functioned. And each time I would I would take a part of the of the game and say, actually, I'm going to tear this whole movement system out. I'm going to put this whole separate idea in. Like that's when I say to myself, okay, we're moving from version two to version three. Or I take out the entire like when when we reached the point in the game where we, where we said, hmm, maybe 
spells are automatically cast maybe there's no like casting dice system anymore boom okay now moving from version three to version four and that allows me to at least mentally because i'm doing it digitally take version three put it on the shelf and say we know that was a game that functioned and version three can still exist and i can always pull it down at any point i like i'm now working on version four and i can make a mess of version four and i can i can get all the toys back out and spread everything around and and build that up um so although versioning doesn't matter, except when you're telling other people about which copy of the PDF they've got, it for me is actually quite a useful mental tool. Okay. So hopefully at that point, you've taken your initial splurge of ideas, you've found a process that refines them down through, I think, stages and levels of, of a private process, and then an early physical or, or at least sort of shareable version of the game that you get other people to look at um hopefully the the next stage um from there i think is where we're going to a point of taking out into the public sphere looking at, at sharing it more widely and we're going to talk a little bit about in my case running a kickstarter i've run three successful kickstarters now raising over thirty thousand pounds and mike's going to talk a little bit about pitching an idea getting picked up by a publisher he successfully had gaslands one of the best-selling game from osprey blue books certainly in the top i, I believe i believe so but i i Certainly a top elite, uh, and then had that rerun as uh, Gaslands Refueled. He's had a billion suns picked up, so so he knows a certain amount about the pitching process. So I'll uh, I'll open by by talking about what it's like to run a Kickstarter and how maybe you go from having a basic prototyped version through to something that you can launch on Kickstarter and and actually get manufactured, hopefully. So a little while ago, Gaslands was out. It was doing well. I decided personally that if I had some of the tools to, to help build a game like Gaslands, that maybe I could do something sort of off my own back. And I decided to design a game for Kickstarter. And and this is one of the, the, the first thing I'd say, and it's something that I've sort of written about a few times in my blog. Um, running back to what I was saying earlier is hopefully if you're a game designer, then hopefully ideas for games are, are relatively cheap to you. Launching a Kickstarter is not cheap, okay? There's, there's investment there. There's money you've got to churn into it. If you've got a list of... 10 game ideas all of which excite you all of which are interesting to you there's a very really important the the best thing you can do for you for kickstarter is to think about which of those ideas is going to work best for you for for what you want to do and what um you have available to you to, to go and kickstarter with so do, do you mean that do you mean that in terms of what game idea is going to suit that platform and that kind of campaign structure best or do you mean which which one is small enough or simple enough that i can at least for my first kickstarter i can kind of i can give myself the best chance of success rather than creating something sprawling and and creating a load of risk uh, that, that that one piece of the of the puzzle falls to pieces i would say pers ideally both I, I'm a big believer that what is successful or worthwhile on Kickstarter depends on you and what you want from your project. And if you want a project that's going to start a business and pay your rent and et cetera, et cetera, for the, for the next year, it's going to need to be a bit of a, it's going to be need to be a big boy and you're going to need to invest a lot into it up front. And so you're going to need a game that's going to be able to carry a lot of artwork. It's going to be able to go in a big box. It's going to be, 
you know, and you're going to need to get a team behind you. And there's nothing wrong inherently with doing that for your first game. If you've got the the know-how to put a team together, if you've got experience in in some of the logistic logistical areas, if you've worked with an art development team, all those sorts of things. I'm not saying don't do that as your first Kickstarter, but if you don't have those skills, I didn't have those skills, being a bit more realistic, get, having a Kickstarter that funds on day 28 to £6,000 is not a failure. If that's what you were shooting for, if that's what you intended, then you have succeeded. A Kickstarter doesn't need to, you know, launch a career that's going to pay your rent to be a success. It needs to print it. I would say that the, uh, for me, at the minimum level, it needs to print a game. It needs to cover the costs that you incurred for printing the game and have something that you can then later on sell at conventions or or go you know put on a website and will pick up some profit in the future so as it comes out revenue neutral and so long as you were happy to do it and you learned something that that's a reasonable minimum and the the point is that you need to look i think with, with quite clear eyes about the ideas you might be putting on kickstarter and you need to say okay my big box legacy game is not the thing that I have the tools to to approach. So when I first went to Kickstarter, I had a, a, a sort of a list of games uh, and I picked out a game called SSO because it had multiple things that were going to make my life as easy as possible on Kickstarter. And there are plenty of games that, that, I, that I love just as much. It doesn't have to be some sort of cold, oh, the corporate giant comes in and won't let you pursue your dream. If you only have one dream for a game, if you only have one game idea, again, there's nothing wrong with that, but you're not going to pay your rent through, through games designing. You're not going to make a profit games designing. You're going to make one thing that is your great dream and you're going to love it and you're going to put it out at whatever level you want. Uh, and, pers and pursue that and you might end up taking that through kickstarter but it, that is not a path that is going to 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 make to break even frankly because that's your that's your love and that's your hobby and you're going to do that because you love it and that's absolutely great but that's not a right i'm going to put a game into the world and i've got 20 ideas i'm going to pick one so calling a little bit back to our previous chat about um, how you get started and how you go through the early stages of the process. So you say that you had 10, whatever, you know, some some reasonable list of game ideas that um, from which um, SSO emerged as a kind of logistically tight product that could be that could be a, a fairly low risk first attempt on Kickstarter. How like how far down the line of development were you with SSO when you sort of started to make this decision towards Kickstarter? Are we talking about, you know, week three of the design process or had this been something that you've been kind of cooking away for, for months, maybe a year or so alongside another set of projects? And it was like Kickstarter Kickstarter called to you and you went to your, your desk, your locked desk drawer of projects and, and selected one, or was it much earlier than that? What's the sort of the timeline, at least for that first one? I mean, I, I know exactly when it was because I was developing a game to, to, to just print and launch myself. And SSO was basically a game that I could, could print and just sell at, at conventions or whatever for about the same as fitting a new kitchen. And then you suggested using Kickstarter. It, it was a very, very, very long way down the process. I, wa I wasn't going to use Kickstarter. I didn't know Kickstarter. I'd never been on Kickstarter. 
And then you, Mike, said, "What? Why don't you Kickstarter it?" And I started researching it. And I'll say, in all in all honesty, knowing a lot more about Kickstarter than I do now, I was arguably not properly prepared to launch a Kickstarter. But I had a That's game. The most common thing said about people's first Kickstarter campaign. No, uh, no absolutely. And I, and also I think, the same I think... thing you say about having children, by the way. <laughs> I was not I, adequately prepared for this child. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you, I think you can be adequately prepared, but I think that having, and, and I, and this is, I, I very much believe that having a game that inherently made my life easier was what made my first Kickstarter um, successful. And uh, you know, uh, over five hundred backers for for a first Kickstarter is is a very good solid, you know, uh, a Kickstarter run, um, which which is what SSO got in the end. Out, out of interest, other than other than just listening to Mike because his pearls of wisdom are always worth listening to, what was the thing that sort of swung your mind on the Kickstarter? Was it the financial element in terms of, oh, okay, so I don't necessarily have to um, put a bunch of cash up front? Or was it the potential for exposure and visibility? What was the sort of thing that swung your mind on it? It's it's def- it's the exposure and the visibility, and I, and I think it and it remains the thing that is most valuable to small independent uh, developers about Kickstarter. The footfall that Kickstarter gives you, the 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 sort of the the eyes it gets on your game, there is nothing like it that you can get for the same price as a small independent. And um, the fact that that footfall can convert very very easily into some 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 pounds in your pocket even if they're theoretical at, at the time i think that's one of the things that's very intriguing is that there's lots of other ways of communicating the fact that you have a new game that might be coming soon and that um it's going to be great and it's going to suit you as a player but there's very few calls to action in all of the mm-hmm. other places that you can do to tell people about if you start a website if you start a, a facebook page if you um you know are are at conventions with a with a prototype like there's nothing that people can do other than go wow yes that's really exciting whereas kickstarter mm. goes here's a big button that you can put your credit card into um and Absolutely. that i think is is the magic the magic part of it because then you're sort of then your new potential players are are in some way emotionally invested um mm. in your product and in your uh, in your game yeah and i think for me kickstarter didn't didn't make sso happen i was gonna make SSO happen myself but kickstarter without kickstarter i wouldn't have made moonflight and i wouldn't have made rage montabano and i wouldn't be on the projects i'm now on i would still be selling sso uh, and and you know and certainly with you know the lockdown i wouldn't have gotten close to to setting out that first print round and i and i wouldn't have recouped those losses and i wouldn't have done another thing it's kick, kickstarter meant that sso was revenue neutral on the day that i sent out the first copy of sso and that meant that when i invested money into moonflight into the artwork and such like i wasn't digging myself into a, a a deeper hole that i hadn't recouped with the first game i was back on sort of mm. level ground and the first game was bringing in money that was helping for the next one and then eventually you know you get together a bit of a, a product line and that's when you start going into distri- distribution and it actually starts sort of paying a teeny amount of profit out after after a few games so so um, there's so to somewhat segue then there's a there's another strategy for attempting to bring your game to market without colossal financial risk to yourself <laughs> um and kickstarter is certainly one of them although it carries some risk 
But the route that I chose, um, and I can talk a little bit more about why I chose this route, was to attack a more traditional route and go for a publisher and try and find somebody who wanted to publish my game for me. And so I wouldn't have to uh, invest any money in producing the thing. It just it would just be somebody else's problem, and I would sit there earning my royalty checks. <laughs> just having money, people throw money at your head as you, yeah. as you lay upon a, a bed of silk. And so for me, I, I I don't know when it became apparent, but I suppose um, at some point it became super apparent to me that the thing that I loved doing was constructing and designing and developing games and that was something that I did alongside an extremely busy and stressful day job and what I didn't want to do was learn a bunch of other stressful and confusing things around producing physical product distribution mm. of physical products marketing of, of, of product because the thing that I wanted to do was really clear to me and I already like I already paid my mortgage with my day job and that was stressful and confusing enough um, without having to fiddle my evenings with stuff that wasn't games design. Mm. So in a way, I'm extremely lucky because I actually had a pretty clear ultimatum with myself, which was I'm either going to publish the games that I write through publishers so that they do all that stuff or I'm simply not going to publish them and I will just keep doing it as a hobby because the only thing I want to do is the games design thing. So I was lucky enough to, to land a publisher with Gaslands and that's allowed me to kind of move into this next phase and that you know maybe, maybe changes the equation a little bit, but, yeah. but not very much. It's still like if I was going to bring something out in an independent way, it would still have to be in collaboration with somebody who, um, who cared to do some of the things that I don't want to make additional time in my life to, to understand. And so what I did was I, I thought, well, I want to get a book published. Surely I should start pitching it um, as, as novel writers pitch. And I asked a couple of colleagues and friends who have pitched books. I worked with somebody who had successfully pitched a like a software development manual to O'Reilly and got that published. Um, and I have a, an uncle who's worked in publishing for many years. And so I asked him, like, you know, when you get requests into your publishing company, what do you do? And I asked some friends of mine who are kind of creative writing graduates, like, what did they teach you about how to get a novel pitched? And all of the advice seemed to orbit around pretty much the same thing, which is there's, at least the way that I understood it, there's a relatively predictable structure for what you need to send. And then there's a pretty set, coherent set of tactics for like who to send it to. And so the thing that I chose to send, and it failed a number of times, and I can go into a little bit about that, was essentially a an, an abstract, a sort of 200 words that says, this is what my game slash book is and why it's exciting and I had to really pack in a lot of exciting high impact things so it's not a dry description of the mechanics of the game it's like straight in with like you know exploding cars and you know dra dragons chasing magic carpet wizards all over the place imagine that's happening and how exciting that's going to be and so the 200 words there is to try and get across both the sort of theme and the narrative excitement of your game, but also why this is a game that you have to play versus anything else that you've played, which is totally boring. And so 200 word abstract. And then I provided a chapter listing, which basically said to the publishers, I have an understanding about what this manuscript will look like. And therefore it's not like I've never encountered a rule book before. It's like, uh, you know, it's going to have the, the setting and then it's going to have the movement phase and then it's going to have the shooting phase and blah, blah, blah. So that they can also see roughly how long 
the manuscript is going to be is this going to be a little tiny micro game thing or has he really got you know deep deep sets of chapter headings about you know exploring six different cities and uh, and all of the different weapon options that are available from the, the populace of those cities or whatnot and then the final part was i also had because as we've been talking about in previous conversations uh, I had digital prototypes, had PDFs of the rules ready to go. I was able to, I guess in novels, you would call it like a sample chapter, but I had prototype versions of the rules ready to go. So if people wanted to look, they could look and they could see, oh, this guy can actually write a coherent sentence and can punctuate things and it looks sensible and and real. And so that that set of elements, I think, was what, what has... Um, not always been successful but that's that's for me what a successful package looks like you know i don't know if you know if you want to say but for people who have tried to pitch something and have had it turned down do you want to say a a rough number on how many things you have pitched and had turned down um just so that people don't feel too horribly crushed when (laughs) they're 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 struggling and 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 i'd say and and again it's up to you but if if you can maybe speak to how many things you've pitched post being the author of Gaslands and had turned out. Oh yeah 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 no you, you yeah you'd be surprised it doesn't necessarily get any easier. There was no <laughs> there was no ten book deal for Mike from uh, Offspray. Uh, so yeah, a lot of the time I get people at conventions who ask me ha- how to 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 get into the industry and 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 how to get that first step in and I think dealing with a lot of rejection is the first step to it so you've been successful you've also been rejected um do you just want to say some a little something about how you deal with when you get turned down by a publisher and and what the first steps are when you finally get accepted yeah so I mean the it's 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 hard it just is you you're sort of like the, the the rational part of you is like okay so uh this isn't this isn't right for you right now i want to understand what is because maybe i've just pitched the wrong thing or i've pitched it in the wrong way but that's the rational part like there is definitely still a kind of underlying frustration of like why can't you see the genius of this thing that's right in front of you you are you, you fools and uh i think the this i mean the simplest advice is just to keep going like it's it's the thing that everyone says but like you're going to have to be rejected 20 times before you get accepted um at a minimum so you just need to crack on spiking those rejection letters on the metal spike <laughs> next to your writing desk as as fast as you can i think like what's really critical is understanding who you're approaching so i like i didn't pick offspray at random i made a big list of all of the publishers that were publishing war games, you know, I, you know, went through my collection, I went through the internet and then I chose a smaller list of, from that list, which was like, okay, these people seem to publish standalone games that don't necessarily have a bunch of miniatures behind them. And there was a few companies like that. Um, and so I just started emailing them first to simply ask permission to submit something so i'd never submitted something straight away i asked permission you know do you do you accept uh, submissions for for game ideas and that allowed me to take even that smaller list and make it even smaller which is the people that that bothered to get back and said yeah we consider submissions from here to there like boom now i've got somebody's email address we've made a personal connection i'm a polite person so that when i send something in it's pretty it's pretty guaranteed to be read 
And the other thing is that you need to be really aware of who you're pitching to. So understanding that company's product line, understanding the kinds of products they put out, like not just pitching something wildly inappropriate that they would never publish. Like that was, it was also part of, part of getting a successful pitch was being respectful of their business and their product line and kind of speaking directly into that because then you make life easy for them because ultimately at the end of the day, um, in Offspray's case, um, you know, Phil has to pitch something into a, a larger team to get that signed off in the case of some other conversations, which didn't end up happening, but, um, but were ongoing for around the same time. It was a case of, you know, a small team that has to make, you know, they, they have a small team, a small company, they need to bet some of their financial welfare on your game. So you have to be really respectful about the fact that this isn't about you. This is about what they're comfortable to do with their small uh, wargaming company. And, you know, all, all of these, all of the companies are small. And so you have, you have to focus on, on, on that respect and also building that personal connection. And I think that's where, that's where conventions and in-person networking can be really valuable as long as you are asking them about themselves and asking them about you know their company and their processes rather than just coming in hard and being like i've got this game about wizards you should buy it ah. <laughs> um so yeah i think that's 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 mostly what i would advise fantastic um but also like i just had the good luck to get picked up like i don't think that i i had some specific set of arcane sorcery that that, that enabled this to be a a one and done. It was a it was a matter of luck. I, I got a rejection from Offspray and I turned it into an acceptance through yeah. a number of like careful kind of emails and, and explorations. But um, yeah, but you've you've got to know that first luck. stage of yeah. Well, you but you've got to know the first stage of how to get yourself into the position to be lucky. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so yeah, I think we've chatted a bit about some of the early parts of the process. You know, working it through. Talked a little bit about uh, some of the ways you can get a game sort of physically into the world. Wherever this gets posted, there's going to be a comment section. If anybody would like to just go into a little bit more detail into one or another part of the process, you want to talk us more about uh, the process of pitching. If you want us to go into more of some of the ways you can work through a Kickstarter, please let us know in the comments. If there's anything that you'd like us to ramble on about, let us know in the comments. We'll try to get to every part of everything eventually at some point. But if there's something you're interested in, we'll, we'll get to it a little bit earlier. Where can, um, where can people find you uh, on Twitter? At Mannequin Games One. If you want to ask any questions or, uh, or or suggest any topics, then I'm Crikey Miles on Twitter. Please hit me up. Yep. Um, so there'll be there'll be links on uh, on on wherever this is to our various websites. Um, certainly, my website has links through to all of our social media. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Um, there'll be a comment section wherever you're seeing this or wherever you've downloaded it from. So let us know what you're thinking, what you'd like us to talk about, you know, what you're interested in. Yeah, hopefully we'll see you all again on uh, the next episode of Rule of Carnage. Uh, thanks for talking to us, Mike. Always a pleasure, Glenn. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.